0: Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Greg Bresnitz. And
1: I'm Darren Bresnitz. We're the hosts of Snacky Tunes. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live
0: from Bushwood, Brooklyn.
1: If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, We're going to talk today to Mel Coleman, uh, who is the um, Vice President for Business Development and Emerging Markets for Nyman Ranch. Um, Mel was raised on a cattle ranch in Colorado's San Luis Valley. And in uh, 1984, he joined his dad's company, um, Coleman Natural Beef. I'm sure you've all seen that in supermarkets. It was the absolute forerunner of the whole sort of uh, progressive uh, cattle movement. Um, it was a company founded by its father, Mel Col- Coleman Sr., the pioneer of the natural beef industry and the first to establish standards and protocols necessary to garner the U.S. Department of Agriculture's first natural label designating beef Produced from livestock raised without the use of antibiotics or growth hormones, so we're t- we 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 we, we at the sauce here, people with the sauce. So prior to working with Nyman Ranch, Coleman, of course, served as chairman of Coleman Natural Foods, a conglomerate of leading natural meat and poultry companies, and the largest producer and processor of fresh and processed natural and organic beef, chicken, pork, and lamb products. Welcome to the program, Mel. It's a pleasure to have you on the show.
2: Thank you, Katie. It's um, good to talk to you again.
1: Oh, it's always good to talk to you, Mel. I really enjoy our conversations. Um, so I, I wanted to start just by like going back a little bit in history and asking you a little bit about the company that your father founded, and um, you know, Coleman Natural Beef, and and why? Why did he do that?
2: Well, and then you and you kind of said it. We started ranching in Colorado before it was a state, and we had always sold our calves. Into the commodity market. So when uh-huh. a pound, 500 pound calf um, is sold, it's raised, then it ends up going to a feedlot, and then three or four ownerships later, it ends up in a supermarket. Right. And, and back in 1979, um, interest rates were through the roof high, cattle markets were in the basement low. Uh-huh. And the bank was standing at our doorstep. Wow. And Dad was um, president of the company then, um, or the ranch. Um, right. And he had four brothers, and he had a desire to see all their families come back to the ranch. And so he was sweating bullets. But one night at the dinner table, my sister-in-law, who was then going to the University of Colorado, had mentioned that she had a lot of friends that were looking for beef that had been raised without any hormones. Hmm. And he said, well, where do you shop? And she said, well, I shop at a natural food store. He says, oh, I'll call it natural beef, but I can do that because we don't use hormones.
0: Wow.
2: So long story short, what we did is we saved back our calves, fed those calves, brought them to market weight, and then started trying to sell them into natural food stores. Right. And and it was incredibly tough. It took a year and a half to get the USDA to give us a label. The yeah. original label talk specifically about how livestock was raised from birth with no antibiotics, no growth hormones, mm-hmm. and fed a all-vegetarian diet. Right. Six months after that label was given by the USDA, they changed it so that at, on a minimum basis, Anything that was minimally processed or contains no artificial ingredients could be called natural. So what that did is that changed it so all poultry, all beef, no matter how it was raised, could qualify for the natural label. So that's kind of when the whole challenge and fight began.
1: Wow, amazing. See, that's I mean, this is why people need to listen to this show, because you get right to the source of these, you know, seminal moments in the meat industry. I mean, that's just a huge story, I think. Um. So since then, and you're talking in the mid 1970s, right? And early 80s. Yes. Um, so what are the biggest changes that you've seen in the industry since then? I mean, there's been a lot of uh, you got a lot of competition now, right?
0: Or is yeah, it less you than know, you would expect? It's, it's,
2: it's interesting. I, the kind of changes that we've seen is, is number one, on the consumer side. More and more mm-hmm. consumers are are um, increasingly knowledgeable about food and how it's produced right. and are looking for products like, you know, organic produce and natural meats and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah.
2: But the, the the greatest thing that I see on both the food service side and the retail side is retail um uh, the managers and executives, and even at store level, um, uh, people that work in stores, embracing the whole idea that you know you can have regular produced products, but you can also have products that are produced like natural. Yeah, and
1: like the original yeah, meaning yeah, of natural. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, natural. Yeah, natural. Yeah, natural—the kind that, as the, opposed that to the no additives
1: about. after <laughs> processing. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and so. It, in the very beginning, the difficulty was is that it was really funny. You could have Coke and diet Coke, mm-hmm. and they didn 't compete with each other they were just they were just meeting consumer demand
0: mm-hmm. and
2: so what was really hard was to get kind of people that had been involved in the meat industry all of their lives on the retail and the food service side to understand that you actually could give and consumers want choice
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I can imagine that it would be very hard to create you're essentially creating a market. Uh, for retailers who perhaps were not aware that that market existed and so how do you convince them that your product is going to make money for them You know, when it's already, it's always a small margin in the food industry no matter what you're peddling
0: right? Mm-hmm. So. The,
2: it, it is and you know one of the interesting things that we ran into is that is that a lot of times you'd have meat managers that were, and this is back in the old days, mm-hmm. that were really excited about a program like this, mm-hmm. but maybe the executives weren't. Mm-hmm. And so they oh, wouldn't work. And so we found out that if you had support from upper management, you had support with local meat managers, then then programs would work. Right. Sometimes the problem was is that the buyers who their bonus program was set up based on how they, their purchase amounts based off what the commodity markets were. Sure. And so when they had to buy our higher-priced products, what it did is it lessened their, you know, it made it more challenging for them to get their quarterly or annual bonus. And so the whole paradigm had to change.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's something very hard to fight against, because there you have, I'm assuming that it's commodity markets that are dictating, you know, those sales, Uh, they're saying you sell more product, we're going to give you a bigger bonus at the end of the year. So how do you fight against, you know, somebody's uh, pocketbook in that way? That's a very tough, very tough uh, battle to fight. So now tell us a little bit about what you're doing for Nyman. And then let's talk about um, sort of the scale issues uh, surrounding working with a group like that.
2: Well, what originally happened is that some of the people that are now here in Nyman have been here since 2007 were people that I worked with at Coleman Foods, and it's a, it's a great team. And um, one of the things that uh, Nyman originally had done was focused primarily on food service and inter- high-end restaurants, et cetera. Ah. And then... Um, we saw that, you know, we were pretty much regionally based in California. And so there was a big risk because we didn't have any diversity in terms of our reach into other regions of the country. We were pretty much tied to food service and didn't, we needed to minimize risk and and get involved in retail. Uh And so in 2010, well, four years ago, um, I was asked to come and to put together a beef program because Nyman at that point in time really didn't have a beef program that was in Whole Foods. And so I did that and then was asked to come on full time. And what what we wanted to do is to develop new brands and to expand our reach not only into meat departments, but also into uh, the dairy case. So I put together a business oh. cl- plan for cage-free eggs, and so we now have a cage-free egg program that's supported by um, small family farmers. That's one of the things mm-hmm. that is a criterion for anything we do.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: then we started looking at markets like, well, where's where's the next generation? And there's 21 million students that are going to be the next generation of consumers that are going to colleges and universities. Right. And so we started doing some stuff in colleges and universities. Yeah. We have a lot of customers that were in our high-end restaurants and retail stores that were going to sports and entertainment, you know, sporting events. And so we started looking at getting into uh, the sports and entertainment field. And then most recently, a project that I'm working on right now is to expand um, into retirement communities. Yep into continuous care retirement communities, there's I've seen two different figures. One is 8,000, and the other one is 10,000 uh, baby boomers a day are Whoa. going over the age of 65, and, and, and a majority or a lot of those are going into retirement-type communities. Sure. And, you know, they deserve and want the kind of products we produce, and mm-hmm. so we're trying to branch out into into those areas.
1: Wow! So, and eventually, I imagine you'll get into food service in hospitals and hotels, and you're probably already doing hotels, but hospitals as well, because that's an area that's ramping up its uh, food quality in a major way. I've I've understood, especially out in California, right?
2: Yes, and 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 that's that's an area we looked at, and what we did is that we looked at hospitals. We had talked to some people, and we found out, you know what? Let's start with the retirement mm-hmm. communities because in some of the high end ones, they have a little bit more flexibility mm-hmm. in their budgeting. Uh, the the desire in each one of these segments mm-hmm. is f- to have the food. The problem is is that almost every one of these segments is kind of in this, for the lack of a better word, commodity paradigm. Yeah, where it's all where it's all about price.
1: Yeah, hamstrung by the price point. Sure.
0: Yes. And, yes.
1: You know, of course, Nyman Ranch. You guys, uh, your whole commitment to your farmers. I mean, you have expanded thanks to Chipotle. Uh, from some 60-something farms. This is something I learned from your colleague, Jeff Trapecian, who was... Uh, mm-hmm. um, he, I think he said during our panel at Chef's Collaborative that uh, Chipotle had gone from 60-some-odd farms to over 600 farms just uh, to respond to the growing demand uh, from food service operators like Chipotle, and I imagine that that um, is only continuing. Um, and I didn't know anything about your beef program. We'll have to have another show about that. But one of the things that we talked about at the Chef's Collaborative meeting, which I thought was so interesting and that was about how to scale up Um, Production while at the same time guaranteeing those small family farms or small and medium sized family farms, you know the price point that they deserve for the kind of extra lengths that they go to um, to keep the animals uh, safe, healthy, and humanely treated during their lifetimes. And so, um, I wanted to just discuss a little bit uh, with you about what you know. What are the biggest challenges to that? Because you're dealing with some 600 and something different people um, and different farmers. Like how how do you make sure That every single pig, uh, say in the pork side of it, um, because I think most people know of Nyman Ranch as a pork purveyor, how do you make sure that they all get the price point that they need to get, given that most food services like the middle meats and we don't sell that much ground pork, I'm guessing? And where do Uh you know what do you do with all those off cuts? How do you manage that?
2: Well,
0: uh,
2: on the it's kind of a multifaceted question. Mm-hmm.
0: On, it is as on usual. The, on, the, <laughs>
2: on, the live, <laughs> on the live side, what we need to do is that we pay based on the commodity markets. We pay a premium, mm-hmm. and then what we do is that we've got just to cut it short. But there's a number of different things that we do. But we not only pay a premium, but we pay bonuses based on quality. Uh-huh. So that what we so that what we do is that we can offer our end user. Customers, even though we're using um, 600 different family farms that are providing, you know, the raising this product for us, those quality um, bonuses tend to incentivize everyone having high quality genetics in their pork, so that we have we have the same high high quality, great tasting product come to the market at all times. Right. The, so, the, okay. The second part of that is, is that we had to expand our distribution across the United States, and yeah. what we focused on is that we focused on like-minded, family-owned distributors. Our model is that we have a centralized distribution. We distribute all species and all products basically out of one location so that we can minimize our freight costs. So it's kind of a spoken wheel type thing. Yeah, But, but these distributors have a commitment to programs like ours and what we do is we spend a, a tremendous amount of time educating them about since we we pay more money for the for the animal, once that animal turns into different products and parts, we have to balance out our sales. So to your right. point that, yeah, the restaurants want all the middle meats, but what do you do with all the rest of them? What do you do with the hams? What do you do with this? Yeah,
0: exactly. So,
2: so, so we spend an awful lot of time finding out what markets chipotle is a great example because chipotle uses a lot of items that normally we wouldn't sell to a high-end restaurant right so that and would be a big boon for out. you yeah because
1: yeah. they use uh, shoulder a lot of shoulder if i'm not mistaken yeah. right
2: that's correct yes mm-hmm. and so what we'll do is that we will say well what do you do with all the off and and all the, um, the the items that are not commonly consumed in the United States, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of export markets that in that want those uh, products and they'll pay more for high quality.
1: Oh, is that right? The ch- the, so they don't in, have in, the same. In some
2: cases, the challenge though is you have to have volume enough mm-hmm. on if they want it fresh on a weekly basis to get some kind of a, a volume enough that it can be shipped efficiently.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean, when uh, Jeff was talking on that panel or trip, rather, um, yep. uh, it, that was sort of an interesting part of the equation, which I, I really thought was uh, sort of a fascinating thing. He said, we always keep the de- the supply a little tighter than the demand, but not so tight that we lose our customer. But at the same time, we have to be able to guarantee to all of our farmers that we're going to be able to get that price point for them. And I thought, you know, what a juggling act that is. Because that's that's got to be that's got to take a lot of time to find all of the buyers for all those different components and make sure that you're getting that price point and at the same time keep your supply viable so you know big enough so that it's viable for larger markets I you know mm-hmm. I don't know how you guys do it can we talk yeah. about how you do it versus how say a Cargill or a Smithfield would do it like what's the comparison or is there one
2: the, to a degree there is. One of the things that, without our, without customers and consumers, we're not in business. Right. But that, but that said, our number one commitment is to our farmer and rancher partners. Yeah. And so, so if they raise product for us, what we're going to do is that we're going to buy that from them and we're going to sell it. If we... We totally to go back to what Tripp's comment was, if we were totally focused just on meeting all the demand, then the risk of not selling all those pieces in balance to what what each carcass produces yeah. then our alternative oftentimes is you got to sell it in the commodity market at a loss right okay Or the other thing is you just tell the farmer, listen I don't have I don't have. A customer for that product today, so I'm not going to buy your hogs, and
0: (laughs) that's That's, so we
2: are going to buy their hogs. And so what that does is that if there's any kind of pressure that comes on, we're generally a little bit short of supply,
0: Mm -hmm. right? Because we want to focus on the low hanging
2: fruit, the items that we that 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 are not in super high demand. We want to focus on selling the items into markets that will take you know those slower moving items.
0: Yeah.
2: Now the commodity. Paradigm is is all based on farms that um, produce efficiently as possible and use whether it's whether it's growth hormones which you can use in cattle, mm-hmm. you can use growth promotants in hogs but not growth hormones. So right. there's beta agonists and different kinds of things are that make coming hogs
1: under fire right. The, more and more. More
2: efficient. So it's all about efficiency. And if you look at these big plants, when those plants make money is when they're running as many as that. They're running at maximum efficiency. They want to put as many animals through that plant as that plant was designed to do. Because you maximize your labor. You just maximize everything about the plant.
1: Sure, that makes sense.
2: And then you've got a sales team that just that sells all this stuff, whether it's into domestic markets, export markets or wherever. Right. So ours, ours gets really complicated because, for example, right now we're in the process of planning for our next fiscal year. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is that we're talking to each one of our customers about each one of the items that we have. We'll take all that information, then work with our live team, and then come up with a number that we'll need for our next fiscal year and say, we need these many, this many hogs next year. Right. And they say, well, this is how many we have. In fact, we and they may say to us, we think we're going to have 5% more than what you really need. So we come back to our salespeople and say, listen, can we up the number 5%? Mm-hmm. And then um, so, so there's quite a bit of planning that goes on in that process to make sure that we balance that supply demand.
1: Yeah, really. It's I, it's just it's incredibly complicated. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by what you're doing. So, Mel, let us take a short break right now. Liz, my engineer, is going to pop in uh, a, a sponsor drop. And we'll be right back with Mel Coleman to talk more about the livestock industry and how a company like Nyman Ranch uh, manages to stay afloat and even be profitable. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Mark Ladner could definitely get a job in radio, don't you think, Liz? awesome voice. Um, We are back. This is what doesn't kill you. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. And the corollary to my show title is Food Industry Insights. And boy, are we getting an earful here. My guest is Mel Coleman, Jr. uh, of the famous Coleman Natural Beef brand uh, that started the whole ball rolling as far as I know, in terms of looking for, um, you know, additive free uh, cattle on the hoof and now with Nyman Ranch. So Mel, I wanted to go back to what we were talking about a minute ago when you mentioned um, your distribution model, because um something that in the five plus years that i 've been doing this program um or something like it I have uh, heard over and over again how difficult uh the sort of processing and distribution piece is for people who are raising uh livestock of any kind especially in smaller quantities um and where it's not like a vert- vertically integrated uh, business like a Cargill business or a Smithfield business so how did you guys you have a you said you have sort of a wheel with spokes and there 's a distribution hub but it's it's national now and and, um, as opposed to regional as it was when the company started. So, how are you based in Iowa? Is that because most of your pig farms are out there, right?
2: Um, we're, yes, our, our hog farms are primarily in, a, in about all primarily in 11 different states mm-hmm. and what we do is that part of nyman ranch uh, is actually part of natural food holdings and we have our own processing plant it's ah, called Supreme packing I to
0: ask you. and yeah.
2: and it's it's in, in sioux city iowa and so our our handprint if you will is is with pork farmers in those surrounding areas uh-huh. and and so the so the whole concept is, is that what we'll do is that we'll, we'll process there, and then we use some for some of our further processed items like sausages and hot dogs and hams and those kinds of things. Right. We use a couple of family-owned uh, kind of artisan type processors do a great job of cool. whether it's making bacons or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then, so we'll have fresh product, whether it's lamb, beef, or pork, that all goes to Lamar's Iowa where we have a centralized distribution center. Uh-huh. And then even the processed items go there so that when our customers order from us and whether it's, you know, fresh meat from the three species or this myriad of processed items that we produce... What we will do then is ship all all the product out of one location so that we can maximize the weight that's going to one distributor, right. hopefully on one truck. And so we're just trying to um, to, to get as many um, transportation efficiencies as possible.
1: Yeah, because I was going to say, that is, I mean, it, it must be one of the more expensive parts of the whole business model, basically, is like, first of all, getting the hogs to your processing plant and then getting it from the processing plant out to the, you know, thousands and thousands of stores and restaurants mm-hmm. that buy your product. So I was just wondering if you could sort of compare that um, to how a bigger company like a Cargill or a Smithfield, like... Um, how does their model work as compared to yours? Do they just work with one? For instance, do you work with one broadline distributor? I guess is one of my questions. Like, how do you do you do your own it, distribution? You have your own trucks, or do you give it to somebody else to do and then have to pay them a cut? Well,
2: what we do is that is that we we do not have our own distribution in terms of our own trucks. What we right. do is that we have relationships with trucking companies that that they also work with. Other small businesses, that, or or sometimes even fresh commodity companies uh-huh. that have a desire to ship to some of the same locations that we do. So so we then um, we don't ship anything on an empty truck,
0: right? Of course but,
2: not. But sometimes what there is is there's uh, there's some freight costs that are higher for us. Because they may only drop say five thousand pounds off to a distributor or ten thousand pounds rather than a forty thousand pound truckload. Uh-huh. So in the in the commodity side business, first of all, the the uh, animals are located to the feed because it's cheaper to um, transport animals than it is feed. Yeah. And then the second oh, thing is really? that a lot of the bigger plants are located where the con- concentration of animals are. Yeah. And then. The volume that comes out of a lot of those bigger plants, they will ship, and oftentimes have their own trucking companies because they're shipping truckloads at a time. Right, and so, so that's kind of where a system like ours, we're not afforded the same opportunity to reduce some costs that they are. Yeah, just by exactly. going and say, say one truckload that may go to us, to a huge supermarket chain and into their distributor. Right. Now it. The part about uh, mainliners, mainline distributors, in some situations, we use some and we've got good relationships with them, but we've got a network of about, I think it's 59 or 60 um, like-minded, family-owned distributors that are focused on the same kind of end-user customers as we are, Uh whether it's high-end restaurants, uh, we we've kind of, in some cases, trained some of them on going into specialty retail because they'd never done that before.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Now what we're working is, is we're working with some of them who have never called on the college or university and said, listen, here's where an opportunity for your future is, right. and it's, a, it's ours. And so we work with them on how to develop the college-university market, uh-huh. and we'll do the same thing with every segment that we try to open up and do in the future.
1: Interesting. You know, I had on the on this program a few months ago, um, Ken Toong, who is the food service director at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, where coincidentally, my daughter has just matriculated. And he is, you know, very much in the vanguard of uh, providing his student body with the very best quality. Of everything that he can possibly find. And it's, um, you know, he's, he's succeeding admirably. He's gotten all of these amazing programs through that uh, minimize waste and increase vegetable eating. And I mean, he's just an extraordinary person. And I, you know, I feel like I should introduce you guys because, because I feel like he is a real mover and shaker in the university at the university level. And they serve 45,000 meals a day
2: right yeah actually i i know him oh, i you know do? him and and we actually sell product to him uh, I'm and not so surprised. and so we've worked and and i've worked with kenan to put products together or program together and and he's been very gracious and introduced us to some of his other mm-hmm. counterparts yeah um but he's a terrific um, guy. I love him. He is. He is
1: really he, extraordinary. I mean, his commitment to the students is just completely, uh, you know, an unsolicited uh, shout out to Ken Tung, But just and having, yes. have you eaten at UMass? It's like incredible. It's absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> it's worth the price of admission just to be able to eat it, in that dining room.
2: <laughs> you, you know, and, and I'll throw an accolade his way, too, because one of the things that he had this summer is that he has a conference where he brings in about 300 yes. to 350 different chefs. That's right. Whoever wants to come so that he can talk to him about, you know, I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to call it what sustainable meats are, okay? Yeah. And and to me, sustainable meats is, number one, about the economic viability of small family farms and ranches. Yes. Number two, reducing the use of chemicals. Number three, conservation practices that, that um, my grandfather always said to us when we were little kids, always ranch in a way that you give the next generation a ranch that's in better condition than when you received it.
0: Yes, I've heard that. And, yeah.
2: so, and so rather than being real prescriptive about what to do, generally what we do is that we just promote sound conservation practices. And anyway, then the last part is is that if you don't have a great taste in product, Consumers are not going to come back and buy it again.
1: That's right. I mean, the, <laughs> that's the bottom line. So, with that, um, with that thought, let us move forward because I wanted to, given your extensive experience in the industry, I mean, having grown up in it and everything, um, what do you see as sort of the future of um, the kind of meat that you just described, where it's uh, it's a it's a, an economically viable proposition for family farms, where it involves conservation and land stewardship, where there are no um, additives. Do you see the demand for that increasing and uh, or do you feel like it's kind of plateaued? Uh, on,
2: on the farmer side Katie is what, was is that what you're asking I guess on or the, the cons- more
1: on the consumer side I mean I think farmers will grow what they think the consumer wants except well we'll get to that <laughs> we'll get to that question in a minute but um,
0: yeah, yeah okay. do you see
1: the do you see that the um, the non-commodity meat sector ex- continuing to expand in the next 10 years or so?
2: Well, I think
0: or I. Or shall we say, change I, the I think protocol. that what's going to
2: happen is that we're going to see. We're, we're going to see. Um, Fifteen years ago, you saw an expansion of our kind of meats that was in the specialty in the natural food chains. Right. And and Whole Foods has since then gobbled up a lot of those and has continued to grow. But And on the food service side, like Chefs Collaborative and other organizations, you see more and more chefs leaning toward these kind of products. Yes. And so now what we're beginning to do is we're beginning to see that some of the larger, big companies um, are going, hey, this thing is not just some trendy fad. This (laughs) is a real deal. And so they're now starting to get involved. And you see companies like big super – Kroger, for example. Kroger's got some pretty uh, – they're focused on putting in these kinds of products. Mm-hmm. And so the stigma that, well, if this is natural, does that mean all the rest of the stuff that I have in, in my supermarket is unnatural? <laughs> that stigma is going away. And there's more and more people recognizing that these kind of products have been bra- embraced by consumers
1: yeah and that they're willing to pay the higher price point I mean I for instance notice um you know obviously I cook a lot and I shop a lot and um and you know Tyson has harvest land chicken I mean a lot of the big players uh, have developed their own brands that are you know natural quote unquote or you know antibiotic free or you know free range or whatever the buzzword is that they can stick on the package and have people think mm-hmm. that it's worth paying the extra pennies per pound and i uh, you know and yet at the same time they still remain uh, quite married to that commodity model that we know is is you know sort of the worst of the industry where you know animals are crowded together in unfortunate conditions where uh, you know there's an excessive use of antibiotics and whatnot to keep them healthy um, and I'm just like I'm sort of wondering why. Why, with the growth of interest in the consumer and in institutional buying, like for hotels, for food service chains, and for things like Chipotle, why there is so much pushback from the meat industry—the you know, sort of the commodities standard, whatever you want to call um, it—as opposed to the niche? Like, why aren't they embracing the niche aspect of it more? That's what I find curious. I think they're very late to the party on this. I don't know. I wanted to ask you what you thought about that.
2: Well, I I, th- I think that, that over the last five decades, the demand for cheap food, by uh, in particular, U.S. consumers, mm-hmm. okay, what it did is, and, and also, you look at agrochemical companies and and other very large companies, that they're, they want to meet that demand for cheap food. So what's happened is that I think that the pendulum has begun to swing the other way. I think that that where you have growth hormones and and beta ag- uh, um, agonists that that are going to help animals get bigger faster. You've got pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers, genetically modified seeds that are going to make everything more efficient. What's what's happened is that our colleges and universities are teaching the, about how to utilize those. Uh, those methods and whether in those chemicals or whatever it might be to and so they're being trained on how to do this mm-hmm. and sometimes we, I've gone to schools and you know kids will sit in there and they kind of they kind of laugh at us a little bit until they see some of the economic advantages of doing it and until they get challenged about this is one of the things that I would like to see happen is that is that the food industry has never internalized all the external costs yeah what I mean by that is is point. that is, is that is that our products cost more at the retail but we're spending a lot of tax dollars cleaning up the Chesapeake Bay yeah. Got dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico. Right. Our rivers and our streams have traces of antibiotics in them. They've got nitrates in them, and all these, and we we have some antibiotics that are be that are no longer effective to treat human disease. Right, and we and we see children that are 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 entering puberty at a much much earlier age. And whether it's connected to hormones or not, I don't know. But we see all these things happen, and if you could take some of the possible health issues, the environmental issues, and you could internalize all those costs, I think that sustainable meats like we produce at Nyman Ranch would actually be a a better value.
1: Yeah. No, I I think that's absolutely true, and I I agree (laughs) that the idea that these costs – Uh, have not been factored into, and in fact, essentially are borne by the taxpayer. It's just, it's the same equation as McDonald's or Walmart not paying their workers a living wage, and then they're going on food stamps because they can't literally pay their bills and feed their families. And who is paying for that? Why we are, thank you very much, as McDonald's and Walmart family, you know, laugh laugh all the way to the bank. Um, So to that point, um, I wanted to ask you, um, you mentioned universities just a second ago. So are you talking about the land grant university, agriculture? cultural schools where kids are learning these older models as opposed to the newer, like, uh, you know, sort of more conservation-minded models? I just wanted to clarify that point before we move on.
2: Yeah. No, I think that the land grant universities. One of the things that I think that's happened over the last several decades has been that when there's a lot of research that needs to be done and funded by, mm. uh, or or can be funded by chemical companies or whatever, it is
1: funded by. Yes,
2: it's funded by. Okay, <laughs> and and so so you see a whole lot of research. Projects that are yeah. going on their land grant universities that maybe really have the land grant universities kind of off course of what the original intent and charter was, yeah. and so if you have a program that or a research program that's funded by a chemical company on what the impact of this particular genetically modified seed is going to do, right. The bottom line is the students are going to go. Wow, this is kind of cool, and you can get kind of focused on, on the almost tunnel, almost tunnel vision that that this is the direction that we have to go. I I do know this is that in different conferences that I've been in, m- most of the people that are really embracing some of the methods that I question on the commodity side, if I can use that commodity term to mean the, mm-hmm. the big industry, yeah they're genuinely genuinely concerned about how we're going to feed a growing world population
1: oh i know it's like the mantra and, and it's like we yes. can only do it if we do it this way because technology is perceived as progress and progress is perceived as efficiency and feeding 9 billion people in you know 3 more years or whatever it is it's, yes And yet it's it's raping the land, essentially. I mean, it's, you know, it's overgrazing or it's, uh, you know, confined area feeding operations, which are not always terrible. I mean, you know, I don't really actually have that much of an issue except for pigs, which I find it very painful to think about. But um, but, uh, you know, for cattle, they're herd animals. They like to be squeezed together, quite honestly. Isn't that true? I mean, you're a rancher.
0: They don't yeah. mind well, being, the, you know. The,
2: the misconception, cheap a lot of Joe. times, that that kind of some of the other movements in niche markets will have, is that generally in the cattle industry, um, they say, "Well, they're all penned up all the time." No, they're not. They're penned up. They're they're in a feedlot or a pen, um,
0: only for, for about 120. You days. know,
2: for 25 percent of their life or so. Yeah. The rest of the time, they're out on grass. Absolutely, speaking.
1: that's right. So, and,
2: it's, and, and so there's some real misconceptions there. Now, that yes. said, I think that. I think that there's and 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 Dr. Temple Grandin I think has done a tremendous service to agriculture and to f- the food industry by and all the things that she's done to yes. make sure that animal welfare practices that are wise and smart and handling systems and all those kinds of things can be implemented not only in how we raise animals but the way that we treat them and then the way that we handle them. Yes, because absolutely. I, yeah. Well that has a huge it's, it's,
1: impact on the bottom line, right? Because a misabu- an abused animal does not yield a good quality meat. I mean exactly. that's just science. But um we have to unfortunately wrap it up. We only have about five minutes, but I want to ask you an all-important question. So um lately I've been <laughs> I'm just gonna read the question I wrote you, is I've been announcing that I think that the trade associations such as National Cattlemen's Beef Association or the National Pork Producers Council or um National Poultry, whatever Um, I feel like these people who are sitting on these trade organizations are basically doing a disservice to the farmers who subscribe either willingly or unwillingly to the checkoff programs or whatever by not encouraging them to move more in the direction of a Nyman ranch. And to move instead more to to fight against uh, you know phasing out antibiotics and to fight against phasing out these growth promotants and stuff and and I feel like they are doing not only a disservice to the American consumer but also to their own constituency and I wondered if you since you were once uh, a board member of the American Meat Institute if you'd like to comment on that or is that too too um, um, too hot a potato to handle.
2: No, I, I, I don't think so. In fact, when I read the question, I sat down and I thought, "Oh my goodness, you know, how am I going to answer this?" Okay, <laughs> so so what I'm going to do is that is that I want to make a comment th- that will be the first part of the answer, and then the cool. second part of the answer is that I'll ask Liz to replay what you just said because that would be the other half of my answer, right? <laughs> but I, I think when the <laughs> I think when the checkoff system was first put in place, yeah. That what it did is that it did a excellent job of promoting beef, and you know because the the beef checkoff system was particularly particularly to beef, but it did a great job of promoting beef. I think it kind of solidified the some of the independence of because family farms and ranches, those you know they're incredibly independent people and hold things pretty tightly to their vest, and so I think that. I think that those organiza- the checkoff system did its job, but I think now what it needs to do is that it needs to be revamped to address exactly what you said. Yeah. It's I think it's old, I think it needs to be refreshed, and I think it needs to be, um, I, I, it, they need to walk out of the room and say, where is cutting edge, and they need to go to the cutting edge.
1: Yeah, because what I see, I mean, in the um, in the various uh, meetings or conferences that I've been to, the National Institute of Animal Agriculture, the Animal Agriculture Alliance, you know, I've gone to quite a few of these um, conferences, and I hear the the not, we have to feed the world mantra, and that mm-hmm. seems to justify anything. And um, and I don't see a lot of movement towards a more progressive attitude towards animal husbandry in general. Uh, mm-hmm. On the contrary, and yet I feel like if... Uh, farmers knew that there. I mean, if they were more aware that there is a higher price point that they can actually sell through, they might be more willing to change their practices, take a gamble on not using antibiotics, for example. But I don't feel that those people are getting the information that they really need to sort that out for themselves. And um, and so that is my issue with the trade organizations. Which oh, and what do you think about Vilsack announcing a second uh, beef checkoff? Checkoff, by the way. For those who don't know, is it's a trade organization or a tr- uh, a marketing arm that is set up by the USDA, but it is funded by um, everyone who produces meat, whether it's pork or chicken or or beef. It's you know they all have one. So, what do you think about the second checkoff that Phil Sack has just announced, in which the NCBA, for example, has gone you know hay- haywire over? Uh-
2: I, I Do you think you know, they'll do I'm what we're sorry. talking I, about? I don't know. I I need to oh, look really? into it. And oh yeah, no I, I'll I'm send not, you an
1: article I, about it Mel cuz it's really it's like yeah. they're having a they're having a hissy fit.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, and, and I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry that I haven't, but I haven't kept up. On it. Part of the reason is, is because I, and with a lot of these programs, I haven't kept up with a, a lot of what they're doing because they're of no use to us.
0: Right. They're not
2: servicing us. They're really not. Sur- and then, quite frankly, they're not servicing um, a lot of our producers either. Right.
1: Right. Well, I think it's a very telling thing. Like, I mean, a few years ago when um, – and I did a completely wonky, nerd, nerdy program, which I, I didn't even understand it myself, but years ago with Bill Bullard from r which was about the whole gypsa thing and I, I didn't even know what I was talking about, much less understand what he was saying. But I just like I, I cottoned on to the fact that there was like this rogue group of other producers who were like, Hey, check off, you know, beef USA, you are not filling, you know, you're not doing your job for us. And yeah. um and I and I think that there is probably a lot more dissension in the ranks than anyone would like to admit. And yet these um, you know, the people who are running these trade organizations are not somehow getting the message that The consumer is changing, and therefore the demands on their producers should be changing, and they should be helping them uh, more than they are in making those changes.
2: No, I I agree with that. And quite frankly, I think that part of the genesis of some of these organizations might have come about when producers started realizing and and, and being more directly connected with the consumer through programs like we did back in the old Coleman days or what Nyman Ranch is doing right now. That's right. But quite frankly quite frankly okay like the certified angus program is yep. done because the certified angus program did, did, did an it was one of the, the certified angus program started in 1979 the same year that dad started the natural beef thing uh-huh. and 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 what it was is it was the it was a branded fresh beef program yep. that i think going back to what i said earlier it was kind of the genesis of a lot of ranchers beginning to think oh well you know what maybe my Maybe the consumer really is my end customer, not just the guy that's going to buy my calves.
1: Yeah, right. Very good point, Mel. Thank you so much. Well, with that, my friend, I'm sorry to say we have to wrap this fascinating discussion up. I mean, honestly, I could do another hour with you about this stuff, um, especially when we're like dissing trade organizations and talking about changing models. (laughs) But alas, we cannot. Um, is there anything people should know about what you're doing? Or just go to the Nyman Ranch. You know, everybody should just read the Nyman Ranch story. I mean, Paul Willis is definitely one of my personal heroes. And uh, you are, too, with the Coleman Beef brand. And, you know, you guys have are revolutionizing the meat industry as far as I'm concerned. And uh, the more people learn about what you're doing at Nyman and what they did at Coleman, the, the better it is for the rest of us. So um, I just want to thank you again for being on the show today. It was really interesting cool. talking to you, Mal. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks.
2: Thanks, Katie. And and one phrase that I'll put in is sure. that one thing that we didn't talk about that concerns me is the age of ranchers and farmers. The uh, average age is yeah. 58, and ours is 46. So there is, ch- there is change being embraced.
1: Progress is being made. Thank you very yes. much. Yes. All right, Mel. Well, with that, we'll leave you. And thanks to my engineer, Liz, and to Kane Winery, of course. And we'll see you next week with another great show. Thanks for listening, people. Have a great one.